Amen. Thank you, Shelby. Appreciate you reading that for us this morning. Good morning. My name's Matt. Um, glad you're here worshiping with us again uh, this morning. Um, just a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm full-time staff here at City Light Center City. Um, my title is officially the Director of Gathered Worship, which basically just means I do everything that Mike doesn't want to do, um, and which is fine. I like doing that. Um, and uh, so I've, I'm Philly through and through. Uh, I've been born and raised in Philly. Um, I was born at Jefferson Hospital, kind of like a couple blocks down the street, basically. Um, and I've not, I always talk about Philly this way and like me in relation to it. I've not left like the same circle of 20 miles in my 30 years of living, um, which is, which is kind of cool and a little bit unique. So um, if you hear at any point like a Fly Eagles Fly or a Let's, Let's Go Flyers that just exudes from me this morning, just know that like that's why I'm just from here and that's what happens when, when you're in Philadelphia. That uh, doesn't really get spoken about as much in church um, and certainly not, not as much in the American church, I feel like, as well. Um, and we're in this series that's talking about community and um, really, we're talking about this just because every human lives in a community and is formed by a community, right? And so your community will form the person that you become, and likewise, it will determine who and what you follow as well. And so we're talking about today that the church is an accountable community of discipleship, or in other words, um, it's, a, it's an accountable discipleship community. And so we're speaking about that this morning, and last week, uh, my friend Michael spoke about how the church is the household of God, and so the next up in the series is what we're doing today, and we're going to look at how the local church is to love its members by holding them accountable. So won't you pray with, this, with me this morning, and then we'll get started. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us instruction um, on these matters and how to love the people who are within our church. Um, we thank you that uh, you, you don't leave us in the dark on these things. And uh, we pray, Lord, that um, as I speak this morning, um, that they'll be your words and not mine. Pray, Holy Spirit, that um, as you've inspired your, your scripture, that you, would, um, that you would also just illuminate, illuminate that in our hearts as well this morning, <clears throat> that, we would, uh, that we would see it and that we would take hold of it and that we would want to become more like your son, Jesus, as a result of it as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as most of you know, normally I'm not here, and normally I'm up, I'm up there on the stage playing music of, of some sort, so you know I'm pretty into music. Um, when I started uh, getting into music, I was about junior year of high school and started playing guitar. I eventually got good enough at playing guitar that, like in my bedroom, that I felt, I don't know, some sort of confidence to try and sign up for the um, band that was in my church. Um, and so this was, this was before the, the larger band that was in my church. It was actually just the youth band that, um, that did you know, music for the student, the student night. It was on Wednesday nights during the week. And so um, it was kind of like not as much of a tryout as much as it was people were like, hey, we need a band. Who wants to be in it? And I was like, cool, I'll do that. And there was like six of us, and it wasn't really a tryout. Like we didn't really turn anybody away. It's kind of like JV high school sports and stuff like that. Um, but I got in, I, you know, I was in the band and enjoyed it. Um, and one of the interesting things that happened when I started committing to this band was um, the pastor who was, who was kind of leading it for us and was helping us get started um, made us commit to four things. And, one of the, and four of those things was regular practice outside of our rehearsal time, getting two rehearsals every week and getting there on time, and then also we had to be followers of Jesus. And so 
um, all of those things um, had to be true about us or we couldn't be a part, of, a part of this band. And it was okay if we wanted to play music elsewhere or whatever, but we had to be disciplined and we had to be committed and we had to show up and do that. And so um, the band had become a committed and an accountable family where we pushed each other to meet those standards. You know, so like on Sunday mornings um, before, before that Wednesday, we'd be like, yo, did you get that new song? Like, are you ready to go with that? Like, have you heard it? It's really cool. So like a lot of times within the band, what would happen is we would push each other to like actually practice, right? Like, and we'd say like, hey, did you do that yet? And they'd be like, no, nah, I haven't. And then like, well, so are you going to? Like, are you planning to do that? You know, we would go to the next level a lot of times. And so um, it, it was really cool actually because the band did like really buy in. We really committed and we, we took those things to heart. And so we became pretty good actually. Um, and it was, which is like not really normally said about most church youth group bands. You know, like if you have any, any experience in the church in that sense, like it can be bad. And, and it would have been bad honestly um, if we hadn't committed to those things and held each other accountable in that way too. And so, um, so our big idea this morning is that um, we, it's my goal that you'll see the church as an accountable discipleship community. And we'll see that in our passage this morning by highlighting four things. First, the definition of the local church. We'll have to define that first before we do anything. And then second, the authority of the local church. Third, the accountability to the local church. And fourth, the glorification of God in the local church. So let's look at number one, the definition of the local church. So in defining that, I want us to take, I want us, to take us back a little bit into the context that our passage came from. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the local church at Corinth, which at the time was a major metropolitan city about 50 miles west of Athens, Greece. Corinth was similar to Philly in that it was a major trading city with really busy ports, and it was a true metropolis um, with really all a citizen could want. Uh, food, trade, land, job opportunities, and multiple temples to Roman deities to worship your god of choice, so you name it. They, they had it. Um, the local church at Corinth isn't doing so well at the moment, though. Um, Paul's received news from a few sources confirming that the church is beginning to doubt Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and there's even division among who they should follow in the church there, and as well as um, there's other community conflicts within the church and also doctrinal errors. Uh, one conflict being that the passage we're focusing on today, um, the report that there has been an ongoing incestuous relationship between a man and his father's wife. Uh, but before we speak specifically to how Paul handles this issue at Corinth, we have to go back and define what we mean when we say that Paul is writing to the local church at, at Corinth. So what is a local church? Um, a book that I want to recommend to you this morning is a book that I stole this quote from. Um, it's, by, uh, it's by Jonathan Lehman. It's called Church Membership. Every Christian, and I don't, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating this at, at all, every Christian should read this book. It's like 80 pages long, and the book's like this big. And like, so it's basically like a half a page for like, for like a normal book, you know? Um, so you could probably read it in like an hour and a half or something like that, but everybody should read this book. So here's, here's um, a quote that kind of helps us define what the church is this morning. And it says, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And so another way that the Bible speaks about the church is that it's both an institution and an organism. So even contained within this definition, how we look at what a church is, it's necessary to understand that there's not, there's not a dual nature to it in a sense, but, there's, but there's, it can take two forms a lot of times, or that we need to understand it in, both, in, in the light of both, that it's an institution and also an, organi- an organism. So it's a lot like, like flesh and bones. Like you, need, you need your bones to support, the, to support your whole body, um, but you also need your muscles to move and, and all of those types of things. And so Peter actually speaks about it this way in 1 Peter 2.5. He says, 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So yeah, right, another weird metaphor a little bit, right? Living stones, like what's that? Um, and the idea there is that, um, that we see that there's this, there's this dual essence of the church. It's not just structural like a house, um, but, it's, but its stones itself are also alive. And so um, another way that I, like to, that I like to think about that is if you think of a glass of wine, right? Like a glass of wine has, 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 is a glass that contains wine, but you can't really have one without the other, right? Like if you had just the glass but no wine, then like I mean, it'd be nice to look at, but like, what would, what would, it, be, what would it be to you? It would really just be something you would stick on the, on the shelf somewhere or in your, or in your cabinet. Um, but when you put the wine in it, then the, the glass has a purpose, and it, and it can fulfill that purpose. So, so the other way around, if you don't have a glass but you have wine, then you just have like a puddle, you know? Like, if, like what are you going to do with it um, without something to hold the wine in or something to get the wine from wherever it is to your mouth? And so... Um, that's a lot of the way that I think it's helpful for us to understand the church this morning. And also important that we shouldn't overemphasize one or the other um, because they're both necessary. We both need to think about the church as an institution, but also as an organism, also as a body, also as people. Um, and so uh, we've just tended, I think, a little bit in the church to maybe overemphasize like the wine part of that equation, like the, the organism part of it. And that's like rightly so to a lot of to a lot to many degrees. We need to talk about the church. It's not just a building, but it's but it's a people, and and we need to talk about how we need to function, how we need to love and care for one another. That's all kind of like organism type type talk. But most of what I'm going to talk about today, from here on out, is mostly speaking to that undergirding structure. It's mostly speaking to that which supports and holds God's people together. How how God's laid out in Scripture for that to take place. So if you feel if you're feeling like a little like I don't know less organic this morning, that's kind of by design and by necessity. So. Um, now that we define what the local church is, let's uh, learn about the authority of the local church that's been given by Jesus. The institution of the local church has no authority of its own except the authority that Jesus gives to it, which turns out is kind of a lot, um, and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of far-reaching authority as well. Um, the local church has the authority to recognize who is a disciple or follower of Jesus and who is not. That's also essentially what we mean when we say that someone is a covenant member of City Light. And so I stole this other definition from Jonathan Lehman's book on church membership, and it's a little bit more clunky than the previous one, but just bear with me. I think it's a good one. A member is a follower of Jesus that has willingly submitted themselves to the accountability of the local church. And the local church, in turn, has recognized that they are a rightly confessing and repenting follower of Christ and commits to caring for the member's discipleship. Notice two things there. One, the word recognize that's there. So that means that the church doesn't declare that somebody is or is not a Christian, or I should better say they don't make somebody a Christian, but they do affirm one's salvation. And that seems to be given to us from Scripture as well, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, So Jesus has given the local church this authority to affirm somebody's salvation and their identity that's newly given to them in Jesus. And they're a member of the body of Christ. And no longer are they a slave to sin or part of Satan's kingdom, the world, um, but they're a part of a new kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. So notice also that we read in that definition that a member is a repenting, a confessing and repenting follower of Jesus Christ. And that's important because there are, there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. So therefore, there's no such thing as a perfect member in a church either. So when you're, you become a member and you become committed to accountability in a church like City Light, we are not saying that you're a perfect person. We're not saying that you perfectly carry out um, what it is that God says for you in God's word. But we are saying 
that you're a repenting person. So what that means is that you are readily able and available, and, and, you, and also I'll say that you're, um, how do I say it? You're especially prone to wanting to repent from sin. So when you see that somebody lays out for you something and says, brother, sister, I see something in you that is hurting the body of Christ or it's hurting you or something, a sin that you're, that you're stuck in, and somebody calls you out of that, then it should be normal. The normal reaction to that for you as a member of the body of Christ would be to say, you're right. I want to turn away from that. I don't want to be a part of that sin anymore because that's not who I am in Christ anymore. That's not my new identity. And so this isn't a commitment. A member isn't, isn't a commitment to being perfect, but it is a commitment to having a, a drastically new relationship with sin. It's a commitment to saying, that sin is something that's in my rearview mirror, and I'm going to put it there continually over and over again when um, I struggle to do that and when I continue to put the sin right in front of me, right? And so we need God's people to help us with that, and, we also, and the church is like that too, and it helps us in that way as well. So again, it's where the church is recognizing that we're Christians, and it's also recognizing that we're repenting, confessing Christians. Here's what Jesus says about this in Matthew chapter 16. And he kind of lays out um, the, way, the way that we're supposed to keep each other accountable and also gives you some clues as to how the church has this authority. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And see, in this passage, we see that the, we see that the church has been given authority to bind um, in, on earth, that it will also be bound in heaven, and to loose whatever's on earth and, and will also be loosed in heaven. And the same phrase is actually used in a passage that we're going to talk about in a bit, but that's, also, that's actually not just applied to Peter in that later passage. It's applied to, the, to all the apostles that are there present when Jesus is speaking. So it seems to be that the Bible supports an understanding that the church is, is in charge of affirming Christians of their salvation and that, that they have been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven in this sense. An illustration that I think is helpful for this as well is that um, the church is, is like an embassy. A local church is like an embassy. And a reason why I think that's, that's helpful is because um, when we think of ourselves as being in a foreign land or being in exile, so to say, um, then the embassy becomes a, place of, uh, becomes a place of peace and it becomes a place of rest where we can be as part of like, the nation that we're from. So just for example, if you were, uh, you know, let's just say for this example that you are a United States citizen and you're traveling to another country, right? If you travel to this other country and let's just say your passport is about to expire while you're going to be in that country, well, and what you would then do is you would go to a United States embassy to get your passport renewed. The, the embassy doesn't say in that moment that you are now a citizen of the United States. You've always been a citizen or you've been a citizen since you've been one, um, but you're not becoming a citizen again in this experience. You're just being reaffirmed that you actually are one. And so, um, so you get, you know, you become, become, you get, get a renewed passport, and then you're able to do your thing and get your return flight home. And it's similar, how it's, like, it's similar to how the church plays out in this scenario, because the church isn't making you um, a Christian, but it is affirming that you are one. And so the same can be said, I think, in that illustration as well. So the local church is similar, that Jesus has given it the authority to make that declaration, and that you are his disciple, and that you've surrendered your life to him as your king, and that you're a confessing and repenting follower of Jesus Christ. Our passage begins with Paul telling us that a Corinthian member of the church is presently engaged 
in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Furthermore, the church at Corinth has not done what it seems Paul has previously instructed them to do, which was to remove him from the fellowship of believers, like our passage says, to deliver this man to Satan, or to remove him from their previous to remove from him their previous affirmation of him being a Christ follower and delivering him back to the world which Satan has temporary rule over. On top of that, most scholars agree that the Corinthian church has likely been wrongly teaching that it is somehow acceptable for this man to be unrepentant about his sin and also still be labeled a Christ follower. Paul calls them arrogant for publicly boasting about their acceptance of this man's known sin. And so a couple questions that you might be thinking in this scenario is, um, maybe you're like, man, Matt, this level of church authority seems like it could be like, played off as a power play, right? Or like, this seems like it could be really easily abused. Another question you might be having is, I don't know, Matt, I'm not really like seeing the word membership anywhere. Like, kind of where are you getting that? Um, it's, it's kind of hard for me to see. And so fair questions for sure. I'll address the presence of membership in Scripture first. Um, membership and its principles are there, but not in the way that you might want it to be. And the way that I'll describe that is that it's like, um, it's like you expecting for there to be, at Thanksgiving, you expecting for there to be a bowl of apples when you should be expecting at Thanksgiving for there to be an apple pie. Um, and the reason why I say that is sometimes we come to Scripture expecting that it will spell out the exact definition of what church membership will be, but actually what the Bible does instead is it tells us all about like the end process. Like It tells us all about like, how the church is supposed to function, and it tells us all about like the like what church membership really looks like instead of giving us the exact definition and so i like that illustration because you know when you when you show up to thanksgiving i don't know about you but like thanksgiving at the apple house there's got to be apple pie like that's that's the only option for like for true thanksgiving dessert like you people who like pumpkin pie i mean i don't know you're okay i guess but like and pumpkin pie is okay but like i feel like pumpkin pie they just have to throw like way more stuff in it to make it taste better i feel like just apples are just a more superior base than pumpkins but anyway um but like you have to you like you have to have pumpkin pie at thanksgiving at the aqualon house and if you were to show up and be like you said there was going to be apple pie but this doesn't look like apples matt like i don't think i want it i'm going to be like dude you're missing out like the apple pie is legit like you need to have this so that's kind of the way the Bible talks about church membership. It doesn't necessarily speak to the apples in their individual form, but it does speak to how the church is supposed to function through church membership and how it's supposed to function well. So um, that's, hopefully that's helpful to you. Um, it's, it's also here important to recognize that in this scenario that we're entering into, into um, 1 Corinthians 5, that it's very difficult to have this level of loving accountability unless there's some type of formal membership or a way of recognizing who is in the church or who's outside. You know, you see how Paul states in verses 12 and 13, he's not really concerned with judging anybody who's outside the church, right? Like it says that right there in 12 and 13. But he is concerned about judging those who are inside the church, who have committed to a local church. So how would he know that? Like, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of people sometimes point to the institution of baptism and what that would look like, because that was a, a very public display of who you were as a Christian. And a lot of people, even, even us at City Light and a lot of other churches, um, want to, as best we can, marry baptism and church membership. We want those two things to, to happen uh, often at the same time. Now, if you've been baptized at another church, that's great, but we often require that you, that you be baptized after you've been converted, and then, and then you're a part of, and then you can be added to the membership. And so um, it's important for us to know um, that that's kind of what's lurking behind the scenes here, that people who were baptized um, and then 
accepted into church membership was the norm in the early church, and that's often set them apart. And church membership today is, is in a way, a way we can look at that um, to designate who is in and who is out and um, who is a confessing follower of Jesus Christ and who just isn't, who's somebody who hasn't come to that understanding of who Jesus is. And so there's different levels of judgment then, right, for those types of people. Paul says, what do I have to do, what do I have I to do with judging those who are outside the church? They don't, they're not adhering to the same standards. They're not, they're not, the, the word of God isn't something that's authoritative in their life. But for those people who do say that they are a brother or sister in Christ, then we have a new standard that, we, that we're calling each other to and keeping each other accountable to. And so another, thing, another evidence of, um, you know, the apple pie-ness of the church, of church membership here, if, if I can say that, is we don't hear about the father's wife, or the father's wife in this scenario, who was the other partner in this incestuous relationship. Probably leads us to believe that she was never a confessing member of that body, never a confessing member of that church, but that this man was. And so, again, maybe still a difference, a difference there between somebody who was considered a confessing follower of Jesus and somebody who was not. Um, still, I don't really have time this morning to go into all of the biblical support for church membership. So um, I actually have a sheet for you guys. It's, I, have 20, I have 20 copies of this sheet. It's a front and back sheet that our church has produced over the years that just goes through the biblical support of church membership and also um, if you're interested in joining a church and the benefits of joining a church on the back. And so if you want that, just come find me afterward. Um, I'll probably end up sticking it on the table in the back if you want that. Also, if you just want an electronic copy, you can come to me and I'll... I'll, uh, you, I'll give me your email and I'll send it to you, and you can put it on your Connect card too. Um, so, all, all, so that's you know that's our uh, where the, like b- the biblical presence of of church membership is, and um, also let's talk about this: that could authority like this be abused? Could this be used as a power play? Absolutely. Um, we humans have found a myriad of ways to pervert and distort what's meant for our good, um, and the authority of the local church is surely no different. Um, and I want to recognize in this in a room this size that I'm sure some of you have experienced um, abusive power in a church context before, and it's very likely that um, through little to no fault of your own did you come away from those experiences bludgeoned and burned. You know, like you've been mis- potentially that misuse and abuse of power at the hands of authority figures in your life has maybe even led to trauma that colors the way that you even see any authority figure from here on out. Um, but I want to challenge us today with this notion that the local church with members and leaders that love each other enough to practice this biblical accountability within their community will build a culture of humility and repentance that in turn should lead to three things. One of them being less abuse of power. Two, more of an appreciation for God's glory and his holiness. And three, a greater love for the sacrifice of Jesus, which can ultimately reconcile us to God and each other when we sin. And I'm not really going to have as much of an opportunity to speak to how that contributes to less of an abuse of power, but Mike next Sunday is going to be speaking about elders and how they're charged to lead the church, and so he'll, he'll get into that a little bit more next week. But I will touch on the, the latter two, that, um, that we can appreciate God's glory and his holiness more, and we can also have a greater love for the sacrifice of Jesus. So what does this accountable community of the local church look like then? How are we members to treat one another and demonstrate this loving accountability to members of the local church. So let's look at this, this accountability to the local church. Thankfully, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18 how um, we are to do this. So I'll read what's on the screen behind me, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, 
let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And a few things I want to say about this passage and how it relates to 1 Corinthians 5. Um, we don't like accountability, and we, I think one of the reasons why is because what this passage says is that sin causes us to be blind and stubborn. And that's why we need other members in the body of Christ. Um, I really like that this passage actually points out uh, that, that in this example that the person who's being confronted about their offense doesn't even want to listen to their other brother. Like, that's such a good picture of pride to me, I feel like. Like, when you, when you have somebody else who loves you and cares about you, and probably somebody you trust as well, who comes, comes to you and loves you enough to say, hey, you've offended me, or not necessarily offense, but maybe you've offended God, you've sinned in this way, and, and you just don't even want to listen to them, like, man, I don't know. That's kind of next-level pride. And it, it just keeps ramping up, right? Like, we see, we see how this progresses, and even to the point where, um, you know, we're not just talking about somebody face-to-face having, have, having a loving confrontation with, with you or with somebody else, but it, we keep adding more people into that situation. Um, and so um, we can just be, like, so blind sometimes in our sin and so stubborn that we just need other people to show us where, like where we're erring, where we're wrong. And certainly this must have been true of the man who was making a practice of, of his sin of incest. The words even used in that passage seem to illustrate that he has his father's wife. Like, it's something that's present and ongoing. So it's not something that he did at one point and then, like, repented of it and, and it was seeking forgiveness. It was something he was walking in. It was, something, it was a pattern for him that he was continuing to do and was not forsaking. And so um, also the entire Corinthian church was guilty of not exercising correct judgment on this man as Paul had asked them to do. And so they too were, in a sense, blind and stubborn to even do what, what, what Paul had instructed for them as well. I love this quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor, a theologian, and an, and an anti-Nazi protester around the time that um, Hitler came to power. And um, he says, Therefore the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself... He cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain, but his brother's is sure. And so I just want to put before you this morning that if you ever find yourself in a scenario where this is happening, where somebody comes to you, and says and like lays before you that um, that you've maybe hurt them or sinned against them in some way, and you don't listen to them, and then it kind of get, gets ramped up to more people being added. You're probably wrong, and the reason why I say that is because, like, how do you get to a point where so many people who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, who are followers of Christ, say that you are wrong and you think that you're not, like? The math just doesn't really work, right? Like, at some point, you have to kind of recognize that, that maybe you are wrong. And you probably should be thinking that. I mean, you should be thinking that right from the beginning when somebody approaches you at first. But if it ever gets ramped up to the next level and the next level, like, you're wrong. You really are. Um, and that's important to know. Um, and it's, it's important for us because when we're in that moment, we don't feel like we're wrong, right? And we never really do. Um, and that's why we need um, people to take those spiritual blinders off, right? We need other Christians to help us realize that 
We need to be soft. We need to be repentant. We need to be, we need to be confessing Christians um, who know that we're not perfect. So um, another reason why we don't like accountability, and it's honestly just because it can be confrontational. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. You're opening yourself up to somebody else and saying, hey, I want you to hold me to these standards, and, and then the other person says, cool, I want you to hold me to these standards. You're essentially saying, you're going to confront me when I'm struggling. You're going to confront me when, when I'm wrong, and that's what I want in this relationship. And I honestly think that that's a great definition of what real love is. Because we see over and over again in the Bible, but also you know this too from other experiences in your life, that love gently, patiently, but also boldly corrects sin and wrong. And I want you to notice this, this passage, that there's many steps taken to attempt to bring this brother back into a right relationship, right? Um, first privately, but eventually publicly, um, members of the church are responsible to patiently and boldly correct sin. And if you're in the room and you're a parent, you know this principle, principle to be true too. Like, if, if you're, and even if you're not a parent today, hopefully you can think back to a time in your life when you did something like really embarrassingly wrong or stupid, and you're glad that you're not the same person today, and it's mostly because of your parents and like their loving correction of you. And even if you haven't had perfect parents, because none of us have, um, then you can still, I'm sure, at least think of a time where that was necessary for you. Um, I know for me, one time that this happened was, I, was in, I think I was in high school or, or middle school or something around that time. I played ice hockey like all throughout my life. And um, there was, I only ever missed uh, one ice hockey game that I was, that wasn't like for like health or like sickness related reasons. And it was for this time. Um, The whole week, my parents, I think I had a game on Friday or Saturday. My parents said, hey, you need to clean your room before you go to the, before you go to this game. I was like, all right, cool. Yeah, I can do that. That's easy. Um, But my laziness, like, and my procrastination just like left it off, right? Like just kept, it kept getting pushed off, kept getting pushed off. And my parents said, no, we're like, really? Like, if you don't clean your room, you're not going to your hockey game. And I was kind of like, they've never done this before. Like, I don't think they will make me, like, stay home from this hockey game if my room's not clean. And so I, I don't know, and I don't even know if I necessarily consciously thought that, but, like, my actions showed that to be true. And so, I don't know, this is kind of a dumb illustration. But anyway, <laughs> um, I was just like, hey, I'm not, I don't, you know, I didn't make any time in my plans that week to do it. And so, um, Saturday came, and I think, I think a game was like an afternoon game, and I didn't have enough time to clean my room and then go to the game. And, like, I was, like, livid. Like, my parents wouldn't let me go. I was so upset. And, um, th- but they were right. You know, they stuck to their guns, and they said, look, this is the standard that we held you to. You said that you were going to clean your room before you, before you went to the hockey game, and we would have let you go if you would have just freaking cleaned your room. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not really that hard. Like, and I think afterward, like, I mean, afterward, I totally realized how stupid I was because it literally took me, like, 20 minutes to do. Um, and, like, was there 20 minutes over the previous whole week of my life that I kind of probably could have devoted to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I realized after how, how dumb I was. Um, but oftentimes we have to admit to ourselves that um, we'd rather let our pride or our fear or our laziness control when we correct someone instead of our love for that person. And in that example, my parents... Um, weren't really operating on any of those vices, and they were saying, no, we are going to hold you to this. Um, It is best for you to learn that you can't just shirk other responsibilities just to do the ones that are more fun, you know, like, and those types of life lessons that I was able to learn. And so accountability in the local church community should be done in the same manner. It should be done in love, should be done in patience and gentleness, but it also should be done in boldness, um, where we call sin what it is, and we agree with God about our sin, like we say when we talk about confession, um, and that and the local church at Corinth also failed in, in this way as well. And uh, another question that you might be having about this too is um, that whole like verse in Matthew, which says, judge not lest ye be judged, right? 
Um, first off, thanks for quoting the King James Version at me this morning. appreciate that. Um, but the, uh, the question about that passage that is often raised is it says, you know, what about that? Like, what is that, what is that talking about? The short answer that that verse, judge not lest ye be judged, is actually talking, is really just being taken way out of context. Jesus is actually instructing the people in the Sermon on the Mount how to judge correctly amongst people who are in the people of God. And so instead, if you'll notice in that passage, that's like one verse of a whole paragraph, right? And the rest of the paragraph goes on to say um, that we should not just take the log out of our own eye, right, when we're, when we're judging somebody else, but we should take the speck out of the other person's eye afterward. So at the end of the like, little story that Jesus tells, both the speck and the log are gone, right? So some, somebody noticed a sin or a failure or a fault in, in a brother or sister, and they said, hey, you have, you have this thing in your eye. Let me get that out for you. And, but the, what Jesus is imploring us to do there in that passage is that we should turn inwardly and we should look first at to, to, to maybe how we are falling into maybe that same sin that we're finding in another brother, and, brother or sister in Jesus Christ or maybe the same type of sin. And so we have to really recognize um, that Jesus and Paul are consistent on this matter of what judgment looks like, especially within the church. Um, Jesus also says in John seven twenty four that we should judge with right judgment. Um, so, you know, you kind of say, like, well, which is it? And yes, like, it's all of it, right? Like, we're supposed to judge within the, ch- we're supposed to judge within the church, but we're, we're supposed to do so um, without hypocrisy. We're supposed to do so with taking the log out first and, and looking at our, at our own hearts and taking stock of what's there and our heart attitudes and what's going on, and then also going to our brother or sister and, and still removing the speck that was in their, their eye so now that we can both see, right? Uh, so uh, that, the, the, that's really a great passage for us to help understand uh, the spirit through which we are supposed to help others in the church and keep others accountable in that community of discipleship that we call the local church. Um, and so this is enormously important for us this morning to understand because the outside world is watching us, right? Like um, it, it sees what's happening on the inside. And that's, that's also true in this passage with, with that Paul's talking about. It even says right in the beginning of that passage um, that, or let me see if I can find it here, says it's, um, this is a, sexual, a type of sexual immorality that is of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. So Paul's absolutely recognizing that the sin that's taking place here is something that even people outside the church are like, that's weird and disgusting. Like, you know, and so that, that can also be true of other sins that happen within the church too. When people see hypocrisy in the church, um, they, they struggle to see the glory of God. They struggle to see the holiness of God when God's people aren't exemplifying that. And so that's what I want to talk about next then is um, glorifying God in the local church. So lastly, an accountable community of discipleship glorifies God. Um, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine uh, recently. He now is not working as an official pastor at a church, but um, he works in a parachurch ministry called uh, Corporate Chaplains of America, and he's still in the Philly metro area. And among other things, the corporate chaplains go into corporations and they build caring relationships with the hope of gaining like access and relational rent is the word that we like to use. Um, we build up that relational rent with people to hopefully at one point share the gospel with them. And so I asked him, like, what do you say is the biggest or most common obstacle for people putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And he took a few seconds to respond, but um, pretty soon after that, he said, hypocrisy. He said, I think... Uh, if, he's like, I think if every Christian committed to being like Jesus in the very basics of life, then we'd have more people getting saved than I would know what to do with. And he even went on, he said, Matt, I'm not even talking about, like, I'm not even talking about people um, 
being like saints walking around and like, you know, like just being like super Christians. He's like, I just want Christians to show up to work on time. Like, I just want Christians, when they come to work, to be nice to people. And I just want Christians to like clock out on time when they're supposed to and like not take breaks that are too long and tell people they're doing something when they're doing another thing. He said like, I'm just looking for like decency. You know, like he's like, if, if Christians were just decent people, it would go so far in advancing the kingdom of God. And um, I thought that was really profound because he's been in ministry for at least 20 plus years, I'm pretty sure at this point, maybe it's close to 30. And, um, you know, he's seen a lot. He's seen a lot in church. He's seen a lot in, 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 um, in the church world. And he just wants people to act like decent people when they're at work. So people will see Jesus in them. Um, this is another reason why uh, this loving judgment is necessary, because when we walk out of step with the gospel, it can ruin others' perception of the local church, but also Christians in general, and also God in general as well. Um, and the man's sin was not even, and like we said, this man's sin was not even tolerable uh, among the pagans, and that's why it was important to correct this sin and to say, look, if you're going to align yourself with your sin more than you're going to align yourself with a confessing and a repenting heart and follow after Jesus, then we're going to have to lovingly remove you from the, from the church and remove from you the affirmation that you are a Christian that's a part of this local, local body. In the same way, Paul encourages the Corinthians here, <clears throat> oh no, sorry, uh, you know, the world needs people like this. Like, the world needs people like us who are willing to represent Christ in the everyday grind of life, who are willing to say, I don't want hypocrisy to be descriptive of my relationship with Jesus from people who are not Christians or from people who are Christians. Um, When people who don't yet know Christ see Christ in you, you open the door and you give them a glimpse to seeing that transformative power in the gospel. If we say we believe in a transforming power of the gospel, but we never actually change, then what does that actually speak to and how does that actually prop up and glorify God? It really doesn't. We, we, ha- we have to be people who are different. We have to be people who, um, but also who are attractively different for those who are uh, around us. So in the same way, Paul encourages uh, the Corinthians here in verses 6 and 7, and he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And the illustration he uses here is that of, of baking bread. Um, you have to, I'm going to skip over some of like the Jewish and like Jewish Hebrew like understanding of leaven a little bit, but ex- except to say that leaven was generally considered an impure thing or an unclean thing. And so his illustration is, is you need to understand that for what he's saying here, because what would happen is when you would bake bread, in order to make bread rise and to make um, and to make, you know, this, this bread that was leavened, so to say, they would take a little bit of that leaven from, from past batches of bread uh, that, and they would just like mix it in with the other dough to get it so that that dough would also, that yeast and that, that leaven would also spread to the rest of that loaf of bread and then it would then rise when they, before they baked it. And so um, I love what, how Paul says this here because he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you already are unleavened, or as you really are unleavened. So this is important. If you get nothing else out of the text this morning, you absolutely must get this. Our motivation for making City Light an accountable discipleship community is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who sacrificed, who was sacrificed in our place to take the punishment that our sin deserved. But not only that, Jesus' sacrifice makes it so that no one may boast in their own pride, their own wisdom, their own comfort, their own autonomy, their own strength, or their own righteousness, but instead we can boast in Christ's wisdom, in Christ's strength, in Christ's righteousness. And we can see that Jesus' grace 
we can let Jesus' grace humble us, right? We can, let, we can just then become, um, we, we can then become the type of people who give each other permission to cleanse out the old leaven. Because as people who have been, who have been trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus to remove, or sorry, I should say, we've been, we are people who have trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus to remove our sins. And we of all people should be most open to that happening, right? We should be the most open to somebody coming in and saying, let me cleanse that out from you. And the cool part about this is that Paul is not asking us to do something that is different from our identity. And what I mean by that is his words here, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He's saying that it's not, you're not doing something to become clean. You're doing something to reflect that you already are clean, made by Jesus Christ. So I love that because it's not, it's not, he's not saying to you that you can get to heaven on your own works and your own righteousness, but what he's saying is that Jesus has already washed you. Jesus has already made you clean. And so when you have that accountability within the body of Christ, we're just actually helping each other become who Christ has intended us to be, who he's already created us to be. And so I, I, just, I just love that understanding of, of what that looks like. Um, and, and that can be really helpful for, uh, for all of us here. And really the ultimate benefit that we see this is that God gets more glory, right? And it's for our restoration, right? When we fall into sin, we have our brother and sister there to correct us um, in a loving and gentle way. And it's also for the purity of the church. It's for, so people on the outside can see that the church is a set-apart, different people. That because we have a new identity in Jesus, that has so drastically changed our hearts that it causes us to do things differently than we did before. It causes us to, to interact with, with other people, with people we don't know yet, or people we, we don't have a lot in common with in a different way. It causes us to love people more, and it causes us to care about, about people more. And it even causes us to say, look, I don't want to be the type of person that, that I'm trying to put in the rearview mirror. I don't want to be that, that old leaven. I want, to be, I want to be something new. I want to be a new creation in Christ. So where do we go from here? Um, just a couple things I'll say in closing here is that um, one good application of this is that you could join a gospel-preaching church. Um, and, I mean, preferably that would be City Light if you're here sitting in the seats this morning, but we don't care. Like, we'd love for you to be a part of a local church and if it's not City Light and to be accountable to the leaders there and to be accountable to the other members there. And I think that would go a long way in... Um, in developing in you uh, this, this, this humble and this, and this repentant heart that God so, um, so keenly desires in his children. Another thing that you could, that you could take away from this is um, submit, your, submit yourself and humble yourself to the word of your brother or sister, um, your fellow church member especially. You know, like, we have, a, we have a special place that we've given to one another as members in the body of Christ, especially if you're a member here, it's a committed covenant member at City Light, um, where if another member challenges you on something, then, then your first response should not be, I don't want to hear that. Your first response should be, let me listen to this person. Let me understand what they're trying to say. And you know what? They're probably right, um, and, I'm, and I'm probably wrong. Another, thing, another, t- another takeaway for us this morning, pursue holiness with the help of the body of Christ, because your faith in Jesus' sacrifice has made you holy already. Again, we're not, we're not looking to become something wholly different than what Jesus has already made us to be, right? He's already made us um, this new creation in Christ. So let's pray together. God, I thank you so much this morning um, for your word and that you've spoken to us with it. I pray that you would, um, that you would continue to challenge us um, this morning, that we would fall on your grace and your mercy, that we would recognize that, of course, we're not perfect. Uh, and why would we ever think that we were? 
because it was, it was your grace that called us, and it was, it was your holiness that, that we were able to see from the beginning, that we, uh, that we were able to see from the beginning, and that we weren't, we weren't measuring up to that standard, that we weren't, um, we weren't perfect, but we needed the perfect righteousness of your son, Jesus. And so, God, help us to, um, help us to cling closely to the gospel in these times. Help us to cling closely to the gospel for the motivation to cleanse from amongst ourselves, from amongst the body of Christ, um, the leaven that we, we so often um, can, can be going back to, the sin that we can so often be going back to. Help us, God, as a body of believers to continue to um, push one another towards Jesus, sometimes, sometimes, always gently, always lovingly, and, and sometimes in more bold ways than we thought we might have to be. I pray that you would convict us of that this morning as well. God, I ask that um, you'd work in our hearts um, that this would be true of us, that we would be a called-out people, that we'd be people who are holy because you're holy, and that we'd be a people who love um, because you love, and that we would love so much so that we would correct one another in, in this accountable community called the church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.